Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. I was going to see if you were going to bounce in there with that. I wasn't. I was waiting for you to say hi to me. We are creatures of habit. A little bit. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Which actually dovetails right into what we're talking about. Yeah. Money. (laughs) <laughs> money, 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 the money. Habits of money. We have habits that are not, well, we probably have some healthy habits around yeah. money, and we have some unhealthy habits, both personally and business wise. Business wise. Mm-hmm. How do you manage your money? I know what you make. You <laughs> yes, make you truckloads. <laughs> beep, beep, yeah. beep, yeah, backing up into your driveway. Truckloads of money. Total truckloads. That's me. <laughs> how do you manage Mr. it? Mr. Bling Bling is what they call me. <laughs> Those gold chains. You how can't I, see them, ladies and gentlemen. How do I manage it? Like, yeah, how do you like manage budget? your ladies and your helicopter and your boats? <laughs> All of those things together. <laughs> um, well, since there isn't as much to manage as you are leading people to believe. Beep, um, <laughs> big money. Um, big money, JJ. I, I have categories. Do you really? That I you, stick to, yeah. Do you do like the Dave Ramsey thing with the envelopes? Not the envelopes, no. But, but you do kind of a categorical. Yeah, I categorize. Like I kind of say this is set aside for this. And with the way that my bank works, so I work, have a credit union, I actually have multiple separate accounts. So oh, that's cool. On, like we got paid today. And I have automatic deposits that go into separate accounts, like transfers. That is and so, brilliant. Like for it do goes most banks to, do that? I don't know. Mine does. So like today, I know that went into my medical fund, into my house improvement fund. So those are mostly like the extra ones that aren't monthly expenditures, but I need to save up. And instead of just having them in my checking or in my savings, I have them in separate accounts so I can know... Like, okay, I need to make a big purchase for my house this week, so I have enough in there to kind of make that purchase. So I divide up my account, like online, actually into categories, and then within those categories, I kind of keep, this is what I have to spend on entertainment and on meals and travel. Do you get, like, if you go to a movie, do you take it out of a certain... I mean, do that you... comes out of my checking, but I have kind of a running total in my head about how much I have to spend. So you're at, you're not doing it really formally. But... No, I don't have like the envelopes, or I don't have. Like you're good a, with things. money, though. Yeah, so I just kind of just watch it, and and I am debt free, Dave Ramsey. So Dave um, Ramsey. Well, that's actually not true. My house, and I still have some school loans. Take that but back, no credit Dave. Cards. Sorry, he's not debt free. Sorry, Dave. No debt free screaming. Yeah, More like a debt free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to be. I think in the beginning when I started the categories, I was super strict. Like if I had a yeah. haircut, it went out of this specific, and I kept. Track. I think that's good for a while. It is, and then now I just have more generalized categories because I've been doing it so long that I just kind of. What do you know. splurge on? What's the thing you go? Now nah, I spend big money on this barbecue. I just bought a really big, really. Oh, nice you bought barbecue. a grill. Really nice grill. Did we you didn't pay for that, did we? No, you didn't. It we're was more than you were willing else. to pay. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You buy, okay, we have a tradition <laughs> yeah. at StoryBrand. If somebody on staff buys their first home, they get a lawnmower. Yeah. And a really nice lawnmower. Yeah. You can either have the kind of double-wide lawnmower or a smaller lawnmower and yeah. a leaf blower that blows 150 miles per hour. And you didn't want a lawnmower. No. So we agreed to buy you a barbecue pit. Yeah. But then you didn't take the money. No, because then I wanted a nicer one than what you would, the well, budget why didn't you allowed. just take the budget off the thing? I told you, I'm going to buy some shoes or something. Oh, you're going to buy clothes. <laughs> you know, you're the most, this is very high maintenance. I know, I'm turning normally into real head. Yeah, normally we go to quick. Lowe's, we get the lumber, we drop I it know. off. But with you, it's like an ongoing, it's been it like a year. Of, it's been a year. <laughs> I still haven't cashed in on my little housewarming surprise. Well, if any but, of the team members listen to this, don't do this to me. Yeah, just I get know, your lawnmower. I know, but my splurges are like, so I just bought a really, really nice nice grill 
and then really travel. Travel is my splurge. That's right. I save up. That's right. And I do big trips and things like that. So that's my, I never see you like throwing the money around or anything, but you do big travel. I do big things. travel. I don't like sometimes people have to say, like, there are people in our office who are like, hey, it's probably time you bought some new shirts and things like that. <laughs> like, like, there are, I do, I don't spend a lot on clothes. I don't spend a lot on my house or anything. I don't have anything fancy except for I love traveling, taking big experiences. And I save up for them and then do kind of one big, big big trip every year and then a few small trips in between. Yeah. I don't spend lots of money on little things, but about once every two years, I'll buy a car. Yeah. Like I'll, <laughs> I'll upgrade to like a, a nicer F-150. I don't buy yeah. new. I feel not cheap, but I feel like I don't spend a lot of money and then I'll buy but, like a big thing. Yeah. And we both plan for those things, right? Like we yeah, kind yeah. of like build it into No, things. it's not an impulse buy. Yeah, but we plan for the impulse. <laughs> I think that's kind <laughs> of what I plan to eventually have an impulse to go on a trip, and so I'm ready when it's time. Yeah. But it's kind of about creating those habits and creating an opportunity to live ultimately the life you want with your personal finances. The, the financial but, stress isn't worth it. Yeah, That's the me. thing. Like living on the edge of financial capabilities. I, did, I had to do that when I was young, you know, just yeah. starting out. Oh, I've out done it and, many times. <laughs> oh, man, two days before rent. I remember rent being like 500 bucks, splitting a house with five guys, and two days before it didn't have it, didn't know where it was going to come from. Yeah. I just, oh, jeez. And there would be like six out of 12 months would be like that. Yeah. I just couldn't, I, I, I hate yeah, it. Yeah, I've lived the starving artist lifestyle many times and loved it, loved it. But like there's a, you get to a point where it's like, all right, that stress is not worth it anymore. And not you worth start it. planning and creating habits that move and you Living well beneath your means. So now yeah. Betsy and I, we do finances kind of interestingly. We run the company, obviously, which can be really confusing. We just did a survey. 55% of our listeners run the company, mm-hmm. run their company, mm-hmm. and then a lot, bunch of them are in upper management. So, yeah. And I don't know what the percentage is now, but we live off about 5% of what we make, yeah. which is really low. But the other part of it is split between taxes and all this other kind of stuff. And, and how then, did you figure that out? We figured that out with our guest today, yeah. Mike McCallowitz. <laughs> well, sort of. We were yeah, doing it before. Yeah, you were doing part of it before, Yeah, we were doing sure. it before. And then I listened to Mike's audiobook. Yeah. This is one of the best interviews you're going to hear on this podcast. It's so practical. Yeah. And it's really inspiring. You couldn't pick a nicer guy to give it. But we'll get that in a second. We have a certain amount that automatically goes into our personal checking. Yep. And then a certain amount that goes into our personal savings. Yep. So even in the 5%, we don't live off the full 5%. We put some of it in savings. And then... This month, for example, Betsy went to Thailand because she's on the board of an organization that stops human trafficking. So she went to Thailand. So we're spending a little more money this month. When we hit savings by the end of the month, like if personal savings, if we have to dip into it, that's yeah. our dashboard light. Yeah. And it's really interesting how you have all this extra money out there, but I don't consider it ours. Yeah. And it's really a sane way to live. And then with that money, you're splitting up between taxes. You're splitting up between what the company needs in order to be secure. So we try to keep about six months of revenue. If the market completely falls out, we have six months to adjust before yeah. we, you know, we're laying people off or anything like that. And then we buy assets. Yeah. So we buy things that some of them aren't the best assets, like we're building a home. That's an asset, but we'd probably be better putting that money into the market or whatever. But at some point, you have to enjoy your life. Yeah, yeah. Mike McCallowitz wrote a book called Profit First. And I listened to this on the way to our family lake trip. And like had to sneak away from the family to keep listening to it because yeah. I was just so interested Essentially, it could be a book called How to Manage Money as a Business Owner Who Doesn't Like Dealing with the Details of Managing Money. That's what the book should be called (laughs) (laughs) because he breaks it down into like such practical things. But the big paradigm shift is pull the profit first. 
Yeah. So don't wait till the end of the month and see what money's left over to see what you can spend. You pull it at the beginning of the month, and that forces you to run the business profitably. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big paradigm shift. And it's a very practical book. There's no wasted words, no wasted pages. It's a quick, easy read. Yeah. But he's vulnerable in the book. Yeah. He's weirdly vulnerable. It's extremely endearing. Yeah. So if you feel like, you know, I don't know, you're not wired to manage money. Yeah. And you have to. Yeah. It's your yeah. job. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're in the process of hiring a fractional CFO right now. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is I need this person to sit me down every month and make me look at Yeah. Money. Give you a little bit more practical. Because as we get bigger, we just get more complicated. Yeah. I just feel like I don't want my part-time job to be diving into the details of where everything's going and our budgets and all that. So I've got to be responsible to that. So I've, we hired a CFO to help us do that. But we actually told the fractional CFO, this is the program we want to run. Yeah. Like, run this deal. Run Mike's Profit First. His name is Mike Michalowicz. M-I-C-H-A-L-O-W-I-C-Z. Not that you'll remember how to spell that, but uh, <laughs> that is his name. And we caught up with him in San Antonio, Texas. He is from somewhere in the New England area. But we were both speaking at a conference in San Antonio. When I saw him on the speaker's list, I begged him to sit down with us, and he graciously agreed. We implemented this program without knowing it and then listened to his book and sharpened it up. And then I asked him, I was very forthright with him about all the ways we manage money, and I asked him to help me make it even better. And so that's how this conversation goes. But you're going to love him. His name is Mike McCallowitz. Here we go. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I loved your book. I don't know how many people I've recommended the book to. I think it's one of the most important business books you can read, especially for small business. And I actually think CEOs of large companies should read it too, because I think there's some general principles in there that are applicable. But the idea that if you have a bunch of money, you're going to spend it on something, so you need to get your profit out first, should not be revolutionary, but it is. Isn't that a shame? It, it should not be revolutionary. It's shockingly simple, and it's simply shocking yeah, yeah. to many people. And interestingly enough, you mentioned large companies should do it. We had our first public company do it. Well, I cannot disclose their name. I would imagine shareholders would be ecstatic. Because um, are they benefiting somehow? From the shareholder benefits, because of Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, these requirements, right. to say you're taking your profit off the table first and then taking certain actions could uh, be in conflict with Sarbanes-Oxley which was ever since the Enron trial, all these yeah, different... Yeah, yeah. So what they do is they do it on a budgetary basis. This company, like say you are my boss and you give me a project for say a million dollars and I'm required to take care of something. Well, now the simple shift is you give me that million dollar project, but you say, Mike, I have an $800,000 project for you. You don't tell me anything else. I don't know it's a million dollars. I take 800000 and you still say, hey, Mike, make that profitable. And they still are. So they're taking their profit first and they don't even tell the project manager, and they still pull it off. That's a whole other system that you've got to create yeah. and, and book and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'm glad to know that you're still working with big companies. Give me the basics of the problem that you keep seeing that you personally even maybe experienced before you figured all this stuff out. What are we doing wrong that I personally don't do anymore? And it's changed not just my business, it's changed my life. It's protected my marriage from fights and arguments. Oh, yeah, it's protected me from, I never lose sleep over money. I lose sleep over, oh, I think I hired the wrong person, but you know, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but I yeah. don't lose sleep over finances. What is the problem that your perfect client is dealing with? The problem is the foundational formula that we're told we have to use. It's in every piece of literature, every entrepreneur teaches it. It's actually in our vernacular. We are told that profit is the bottom line. And the formula is this it's sales minus expenses right. equals profit. That is the problem. So it's not us. We're actually following it to the T. 
The issue is that formula doesn't appreciate human behavior. And human behavior is this. When something comes last, it means it's insignificant and can wait. If something comes first, it's the priority. So the best example is probably in health. If I went to the hospital, I rushed to the hospital, and the doctor does examination, she says, you know, Mike, you got to change your diet immediately, stop drinking, stop smoking cigars with Dave Ramsey tonight. <laughs> you know, like, don't do that. That's killing you. I don't come out of the hospital saying, you know what? Today's the first day I'm going to put my health last. Right. I say, today's the first day I put my health first, and I'm permanently going to put it first. So it is human nature. What comes first is the priority and gets addressed. What comes last is the perpetual manana syndrome. In profit, we're told comes last. So what happens is, in practicality, we look at the end of the month and say, ah, no profit. Maybe next month. We literally delay it 30 days. At the end of the year, when the tax returns come, we're like, ah, oh, no profit. Or maybe there's a what they call a paper profit, where the accountant says, oh, you made a little money, but it's gone. So right. I'm talking about the entrepreneur's definition of profit, cash in the pocket. And at the end of the year, it's not there. And we say, well, maybe next year will be the year. We keep on putting it off and off and off. Let's get down to just brass tacks. Let's just make up a company. Company one, you know, some lawn care company doing a quarter million dollars a year. At the end of the year, they basically didn't make a whole lot of profit. The owner took a salary of, you know, it's a new company, so 55 or mm -hmm. something like that. So they're at 195 and operating expenses and all that kind of stuff. What's the first thing you tell that owner to change? Literally the first thing is we have to take our profit first because we're always going to backfill well, part of the logic. problem is he doesn't think he's making a big profit. When of course he, not, yeah. Because yeah. he's spending it somewhere. And he's got he the proof. He didn't take it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so, so you got to convince him first. There's profit in here you're just not accounting for because your brain is so muddled Yeah. in how you're spending the money. Yeah, so it's human nature to backfill any situation with logic. The emotion comes first. We see the result and then say, here's the reason why that's the case. Hmm. With health, everyone knows that smoking is bad for you. Hmm. I don't know a single person that knows it, including smokers. But still, to break that habit is near impossible. You say, well, look, I backfill it. I've never had a problem. Other people have, but I've been fine. I enjoy smoking. It actually gives me relaxation and relief. It's only when I have that heart attack, then that's such a brutal facing of the reality in front of me that I make the change. So with the finances, when someone isn't profitable, they backfill with logic and say, I can't be. I need that new equipment. I had to do this. I must do this. The only way my business can grow is by spending more money. What do you think when you hear a business leader say, you know, we're putting the money back into the company. Oh, my God. What, what, what comes to your mind when you hear that? Expenses. So we call it pushback, plowback, reinvest. There's these terms we have that are simply soft terms for saying they're more expenses. My feedback is this. If you don't have enough money to make profit, there is something fundamentally wrong with your business. Hmm. And we have to get honest about that. If you're plowing back money, shame on you for calling that profit. It's not. It's an expense. You don't reinvest profit. It's an expense. Yeah. A profit goes into your pocket. That's the only profit that exists. So if business leader A made, the company made total gross quarter million, he kept 50000 how much should he be pulling out every month? So Is that how you recommend it? At the beginning of the month, if I remember the book correctly, you recommend pulling out your profit yeah. predetermined. Yep, a percentage-based system. Gotcha. So I think there's two types of distributions for a small business. One is the equivalent of the salary for the most important employee. If I own a small business... I own that lawn care company. Mm -hmm. I'm also an employee inside that company. So I right. need to pay myself a salary. That's the replacement salary. If I was to leave and had to hire someone else, what would I pay them? That's what I need to get paid. That's compensation or salary. On top of that is profit. Profit is a reward for owning the business, taking on extraordinary risk. So you're a shareholder in your business. That is a percentage of your income. If you've never been profitable in the past, and I suspect most people listening haven't, start off a small percentage, one or 2%. 
it's so small that it's just not going to make a difference. You're going to sink or swim anyway. Yes, you won't feel any. But expensive. you're creating a habit. Yeah. Of paying yeah. yourself. The psychological change is extraordinary. When people start taking, just say one percent of profit, you can run your business as normal. You don't experience anything. But when you start looking at that profit account, and then when you take it out to reward yourself, the only use of profit is a reward, which means paying yourself a bonus, going on vacation, using it if it's a small amount, go out to Starbucks with those you know, 10 bucks in profit. And I'll tell you, that's the best Starbucks you're ever going to have, that celebration. Once you start doing that, the mental muscle starts to build and the confidence And you profit. like, you gamified the creation of profit Heck at that yes, point. yes, my brother. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. And that's very motivating. Yeah, it really is. Okay, I want to get to these four principles that you talk about. But before that, yeah. I read your book seven, eight months ago, Told my wife all about it, sat her down, tried to explain it. I think we're halfway there implementing it because it's not an overnight implementation, although you have yeah. some accountants that you recommend and you certify. Critique how I'm doing it. First of all, I have three accounts that are like your system. Okay. One is our business account. That's just our daily operating account. Okay. Another one is our taxes okay. account. And another one is our profit account. Profit okay. account does not include my and Betsy's salary. Okay. So... The quickest way I could implement your system before I actually did a deep dive, and we're also hiring a controller who I want to use nice. your system. So they're actually going to implement it for me. But I had to do something right away. Mm -hmm. And that was anytime the business account gets above 100 grand, let's say I check it one day and it's 125, I transfer 12.5 to taxes and 12.5 into profit and get rid of it. I get it out of the business account mm. so that we're always very healthy and I don't look at it and go, well, we could make that decision. We got a quarter million dollars in this account, yeah. you know, or whatever. I just make sure that the profit is always being skimmed, not on a regular basis. So I'm confessing I've half implemented your system. But help me get better. What do I need to do? Yeah, well, kudos for you for doing anything, right? Just the fact you're doing mm. that, you start having a different perspective on your totally business. Totally, a completely different perspective. For instance, if we don't put as much taxes and profit mm. into the account, for May, as we did in April, that is purely gamified for me. And I'm going, okay, we are backtracking here. Yeah. And I will start making changes. Good. When before, it would have just been a bunch of muddled numbers. Right, right. So there's two things I would do. First of all, make sure you're doing a percentage-based transfer. So when there's less income, and maybe you already are, when a less income comes in, you're still taking a percentage of it. Or if more income comes in, it's a fixed percentage. Right. The big... Action I would take. Those so you up. actually take it off of checks coming in. Yep. You look at that number, and you don't have an account like I do, where if it goes over hundred grand, you no. split it up. You do it right off right. the dollars coming in. Literally a deposit. Okay. So okay. So my controller would have to. Be yeah. Do a percentage-based transfer. That way, everything is accounted for. The second thing is I'd open at least one more account, and I would call it income. The income account simply is what's called a depository account. Money flows in there and just sits there to then be allocated from. Otherwise, money gets muddled, like, like you were saying. If I have a business operating expense account and all my deposits go in there, but I also pull a portion of that money to pay expenses, it's unclear when I log into my bank account to see what my income has been up to that point. Gotcha. So I actually thought they were synonymous, the income account and what I call the business account. You're saying income should come into one account, and then you should also put a percentage back into the business account to pay overhead and, Called OPEX, and all that. Yeah. And so the analogy I use now is like a serving tray for Thanksgiving. If we were having Thanksgiving at your house, and I just implied I'm inviting my house, myself to your house. <laughs> You're so more you. than welcome. Yeah, thank you. I can't wait. <laughs> you know, that turkey will come out of the oven, and you and your wife will carve up the turkey, and you won't say to the guests, you won't say, hey, Mike, uh, just everyone dive into the serving tray, every man for themselves. Right. What you do is you apportion everyone's plate so everyone has some turkey to eat, but no one eats off of a serving tray. 
That's how money works. We first put the cash into a serving tray, if you will, for our business, so our business can see what's available to be dined on. Then we carve up that cash turkey and put it into these different accounts for its different intended purposes. Another thing that I haven't done yet that you highly recommend in the book that sounded so good to me, just literally haven't gotten it done yet physically, go to a different bank. Oh, yeah. And set up another account. Yes. So this is what we're now at the fifth account, two more that I need to create. Yeah. One is income, one is this account. And you want it to be a little harder to get to. Yes. And that's why you say physically a different bank, a different app on your phone, a different website, not transferable from these four accounts over here very easily. What is the purpose of that account? I'll put one disclaimer in here. This is often where I lose people and they say, so many accounts that I need to set up like this. Oh, they're so easy though these days. They're it's so, so easy. easy. It's ridiculous. So easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people get overwhelmed and then they throw the baby out with the bathwater. So that's why I say, you know, step into this super slowly. The reason that I'm suggesting another account is to remove temptation. And this is how this works. If you give me some money and say, Mike, put this uh, aside as profit, and I leave it here on the table in front of you and say, okay, this will be profit, and you can see it every day, and that one day comes where you need to buy a piece of equipment or you can't afford to pay something, the money is accessible in front of you. Chances of you borrowing, and I'm doing air quotes, the chance of you borrowing from yourself is very high, and the chances of you paying yourself back is very low. Right. We, we should steal right. from ourselves. That's why we need to find a separate bank. And we want to transfer the money there. Now, here's a couple of rules about the separate bank. No online banking, freaking no ATM card, please. No starter checks. I want it to be a deposit only a bank. And you so can, you physically write a check and go down and deposit it? Yeah, or you can do a transfer in without a transfer out. That's how I do it. Okay, uh, yeah, that's easy. Across the right? wire, yeah, yeah, so yeah. easy. I now call it the drive of shame. So my, <laughs> my second bank <laughs> You ever is, have to go get money out of it. Yeah, I'm in New Jersey. Uh, my second bank is in New York. And getting across the Hudson is about a two-hour drive. Wow, you physically you physically did this. Yeah, I can't get it unless I get a bank check. So I have to drive there. I actually just did it last quarter. I go to the banker. They come out and they write a check. For two hours, I have to say to myself, am I doing this for a reward? That's the only use of profit. Am I using it? Or am I using it to fund a failure in my business? If my and you know the difference when you're driving to that bank. Oh, <laughs> yeah, the sweat's coming down. You know, the self-talk. It's the drive of shame. Yeah. And there's other ways of having that accountability, but the goal is to remove temptation. When something's out of sight, it's out of mind. We make do with what we got, and that's the basis of the system. I can't believe that every small business leader isn't doing this. So I have interviewed people that are making or taking home 25K up to 25 million, and I found it is irrelevant how much money you make. It's the spend that determines your stress level. So I've met the guys who make 25 million a year who are terrified every night they go to bed if they're going to make enough money to survive tomorrow. And when I say survive, that's also air quotes. And I've met people making 25K who are as comfortable as possible because they're tucking money away. So the little point I'm making here is you can never make enough money. You have to put the system in regardless of the size of your business. Yeah. And the sooner you start, the sooner you get this habit in place, the better you'll be in the long run. Yeah. And the other thing is this is nothing new. This is the same stuff Dave Ramsey teaches. This are books like The Richest Man in Babylon. I don't know how many decades ago that was written, but that book teaches it. Think and Grow Rich talks about this system. Huh. I'm just the guy who says we got to apply this not just to our personal lives, but to our business lives because business owners, our personal lives and our business are locked together. Yeah, yeah. especially for small business owners. Especially there for is no difference. There's no difference. Okay, well, the book is called Profit First. I want to get into some of the core principles. You've got four core principles of Profit First. The first is, and I love this analogy, Use small plates. 
Yeah. Explain what that means. And this is all based upon behavioral psychology. Uh-huh. There was a theorist in the 1950s named Northcote Parkinson. Okay. He said that as a resource's supply of a resource increases in its availability, we actually consume more of it. So the more time I have to do a project, it'll take me longer to do the project. Uh, the more toilet paper you have in your bathroom, the more you use. And he also pointed out when there's less of a resource, we become more innovative and more frugal. Hmm. Less toilet paper, less time. But the, the reality is this works with money too. If we have one large account, when I say large account, one single account, that's the serving tray. All of our money goes there. We consume all of that resource. When I say use small plates, what I'm saying is set up these different accounts that are small servings for different purposes. And what we'll do is if we have a small plate for our operating expenses and the portion of that income goes there, we will live and survive off of what's there. According to Parkinson's law, the less money that's there will become more innovative and more frugal. Yeah. So small plates is the idea of setting up multiple plates or accounts for different intended purposes and pre-allocate money to its intended purpose prior to spending it, then work within the confines of that plate. I love it. I mean, the idea of just work with smaller plates, eat less food. This isn't just a saving your profit. This is actually, it forces you to organize your economics. And yeah. the other thing that I love about your system, the way you, you describe it, is... I'm more of a creative visionary than a detailed person, unless I'm writing a book and then I can, you know, hyper focus a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. But this allows me to think in basically buckets, mm-hmm. which my brain does anyway. And That's so, a creative visionary who doesn't like the details, you're going to love this system. But getting to back to your point, it forced me to actually think about every decision that we made and where the money was going to end up in the different buckets. Because now you don't just think hiring you think, well, hiring is going to decrease the money in this bucket. Yes. So now you've actually broken down. If we don't hire an administration person, we hire a salesperson, it is going to decrease this bucket, but it's going to greatly increase that bucket. And you begin thinking differently. You do. And you get direct feedback. The second there's not enough money in your profit to pay your profit, that is your business telling you there's something fundamentally wrong. We're reverse engineering profit. Yeah. So if there's no money left there and you can't pay your bills, your business is telling you, you can't afford your bills. We have to cut costs, increase margin. That's the two ways out of it. And by the way, as I've been consulting businesses, and we've had the blessing now of over 75,000 companies implementing Profit First. It's amazing. Oh, it's such a blessing. It's the tip of the iceberg. There's 27 million more to go. In the U.S., there's 180 million globally. That's amazing. And our goal, my goal, is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty would you realize how many jobs that's going to create, how that affects actually the global economy if people just do this? I think system? it could change the world. I think it could change the world. And I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. It would be such a blessing if it does. I hope I can leave a legacy where it does instigate that change over someone's lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, core principle number two, serve sequentially. Yeah, so what I mean here is this is the title of the book, is we have to serve the profit first. Ironically or coincidentally, it's usually the last thing we right, do. Right, right, right. So what happens is that money goes into the income account. We divide money up on percentages, but the first percentage that we allocate is profit. This is a behavioral reason. Yeah, worth repeating. Yeah. So the first percentage we allocate is always to profit. I know it's a percentage-based system, so they're the same piece of the pie. Why does it matter? It's a psychological reward. Most business owners of small businesses do what's called bank balance accounting. I got my iPhone here, I log into my iPhone, I see what my bank balance is, and then I make decisions based upon what I see. Understanding that most businesses run off of their phone or their bank accounts, we're also doing the transfer. When I take a portion of money from income and put it into profit, I feel a reward. I'm like, yeah, 
I just paid my business and my future. Then you allocate to the next account, which is the owner's compensation, your salary. Hey, I'm getting paid. Then we pay the tax allocation, which is not a reward. It's not like, oh my gosh, this is so great. I'm paying the government, but it does keep you out of jail at least, yeah, right? There's some sense of reward. You're right, because it's you're, protection you're not breaking the law. Yeah. Then the last allocation is the operating expenses. That's what the business needs to survive off of. So we always do the sequence, reward ourselves, reward ourselves. But most businesses, sadly, pay all the bills first. They, mm. they pay all. And what they say is, oh, there's nothing left for me. And they start to resent their business. <laughs> we need to flip that over. Yeah, you feel like the business has enslaved you rather than you're working on it. Okay, we talked about this a little bit, but hit it again if you like. Remove temptation. Yeah, so we talked about setting those separate accounts. Here's the other part I want to talk about is when we allocate money to the profit account, we actually do it with our existing bank first. Then we transfer it to the second bank. And I know this sounds like a second unnecessary step, but it's necessary because a transfer from one bank to another can take up to five days if there's a holiday. So what we do is we allocate money in at our current bank to the profit account, and it's at least in that envelope. It's on that plate. Mm -hmm. It reduces temptation, and we can use willpower to get by for a while because now you know the intended use of that money. If it just sits in the income account, it will actually confuse us. Most entrepreneurs I interview and myself log into their bank accounts maybe two or three times a day to see how much money's there. So if it just sits in income waiting to transfer over to the second bank, it becomes tempting. So transfer the money to its proper plate. Once you see it there, then invoke a transfer over to that second bank and it'll disappear in its due time, usually two or three days, sometimes up to five. And now it's out of sight, out of mind permanently. Yeah, and that's money for your future. It's oh funny gosh. how when I think of net worth, I never think about investments that I made 10 years ago in some SEP IRA or something like that. You just don't think about it, and you realize, but that's oh, wow, that, that's, that's, that's going to come back someday. Enforce a rhythm. Do payables and allocations twice a month. I cringe at this one. I feel guilty. I feel like I'm sitting before the priest. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. It's not a rhythmical thing for me. That's one of the reasons we're hiring a controller to really help us figure this out. But yeah. it's got to be a twice-a-month rhythm to do a deep dive into the numbers. Is that what it is? Yeah, so most, most people do it sporadically, yeah, re reactively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're doing reactively, that's okay. But we want to get to a rhythm because a rhythm brings about predictability. Yeah, I recommend doing this twice a month or four times a month, once a week, where the money just piles up in the income account. Then on that trigger day, twice a month or once a week, then all the money in the income account goes to zero and we transfer the money to the other accounts and continue on with the system as we already discussed. The reason we do this is now we get to see where our income will cap out after a normal week. Hmm. So I'm blessed to own a few businesses. One of the companies I'm involved in, it's about 75000 every week in that income account. There are days, uh, it happened last Friday, that it's like 30000 and that puts off alarms. I'm like, whoa, we didn't get our expected numbers. We're way off. What's wrong? And then I call my accountant and CFO, and we investigate it. There's other times it's over the expected income. The idea is that the dashboard lights work. Yes. And this is the most simplified cash flow statement in the world. I honestly do not know how to read a traditional cash flow statement. The intention of a traditional cash flow statement is to warn you when cash flow is unexpected, how it's behaving. Right. This is a simplified version. I continue <sighs> to do what I do. I just log in my bank account. Do I see what I expect or not? And if it's not what I expect, investigate. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Mike Michalowicz in just a moment. If you've been listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast for a while, you're probably wondering what's next. You've probably sat around thinking, you know, I've got to bring my marketing into this next evolution. I've got to clean up the clutter and see a better response from customers. If you want to get started for free, just go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. You can either spell it out or use the number, doesn't matter. 
5minutemarketingmakeover.com, I will give you three five-minute videos that if you just execute what I say in those videos, you will definitely see results. It is the best place to start. 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. Now, I want to go through the five foundational accounts because one of the principles yep. is set up your business, their profit first way. It's income, profit, yep. owner's compensation, that's right. which is different than profit. Yes, and very that's, different. that's one of the mistakes I'm making now is I've got them together. So yep. taxes, which I've done that, and then operating expenses. And then two no temptation accounts. I think we've covered one of them, right? We talked about the profit account, move your profit, but got also profit is no your temptation. taxes. So if the taxes just sit there in your current bank and don't get transferred to the government uh, frequently, some businesses only do it once a quarter if you're mm -hmm. an LLC or sole proprietorship, then that money will become tempting. Like, oh, I'll just borrow from my tax account. The government won't miss it. Well, guess what, pal? The government will miss it. Yeah. Uh, and they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll get a little bit upset about that. Yeah. So we also transfer that money and tuck it away and hide it away at the second bank. Well, you know, let it accumulate some interest and then pay the bill from that second bank. Yeah. One thing I love about my tax account is I went with 50%, which is actually aggressive. And it's nice that every once in a while, I get to move money out of my tax account back into my profit account. I just went a little bit more aggressive with it. That's I never, awesome. ever, ever, ever want to worry about taxes. That's awesome. And so you're atypical. Most people under-reserve for their nah, taxes. why? Yeah. And then when tax time comes, they panic and they get PO'd at their accountant. They get PO'd at the government. First of all, I believe taxes, as painful as they are, it's our legal obligation. Mm -hmm. I believe, and then what I say is I'm basically, I'm an agent for the government. Every time there's a transaction, they take their you know, 30, 40%, whatever. That's the law. I don't like it, but it's my required responsibility as a citizen of our country. So when that money comes, I immediately put in the tax account. The nice thing is the, the behavioral response changes. Instead of the money coming out of my pocket to the government, it comes out of my business's pocket. And even though the effect to me is the same, since it's not coming out of my personal pocket, That's right. there's not there's a negative association. There's something psychological where when you had $500,000 in this account and now a quarter million has to be taken out, you feel like you lost a quarter million. But if yeah. you had a quarter million in one account, a quarter million in the other, quarter million goes to zero, I still have my quarter million. I there's won. something psychological them. about it. It really is true. Yeah, it's called loss aversion. So this is a behavioral huh, yeah. response. And loss aversion says once we possess something, even temporarily, if we have to get rid of it or, or it's taken away from us, we have a negative response. So exactly as you explained, yeah. if I had that money in my hand, even for a moment and give it to the government, I hate the government. If I didn't have the money and it sat on the side and the government takes it, eh. You know, Let's talk about what the allocation percentages actually are. I realize each business is probably a little bit different, yep. but give me a 30,000-foot view. Okay, so we conducted a study initially of about 1,000, what we call the fiscally elite businesses, and we were industry agnostic. It was like a pizza shop. It was a lawnmower guy, lawyers, accountants, all these different businesses, and determined based upon different revenue ranges what the fiscally elite were doing. So I'll give you a number off the top of my head for a million-dollar business. But here's my disclaimer to this. This is not a starting point. This is an end point for most businesses, a tap. We call it a target allocation, not a starting point. And individual businesses may need to tweak. That's my disclaimer. A fiscally elite $1 million business will put about 10% of its income into profit. So if a $100,000 check came in, 
this quarter or whatever, I take 10% of that, $10,000 and put in profit. 10% goes to the owner's compensation, 15% to the tax reserve for the government, and the remaining 65% goes to operating expenses. So that means if on a million dollar business, uh, a fiscally elite company, the owner will take $100,000 in compensation home, plus have a $100,000 profit bonus, right. plus there'll be a tax reserve of 150 grand, and they run the business off 650. When I say those numbers, especially in front of a live audience, that's when people gasp. They discount me. They say, no, my business could never do this. You don't know who I am. You know, this guy's an idiot. And I, I get it. Yeah. I'm just saying this is what the, the statistics, the study shows. Yeah, let the numbers guide your behavior rather than the, right, your the other way around. Because right? what they're saying uh, is, yes. Yes. what they're really saying is my house is not in order. That's exactly right. And, and it's this too is painful forcing to them, say that. Yeah. So it's sort of like going to the doctor and saying, hey, no more bread. No more sugar. Right. No more whatever. It's, it's impossible. I, 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 wake up, I wake up and eat donuts. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> How am I supposed to run? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's why I say these are simply targets. We need to start off slow and build muscle. So I suggest if a business has never been profitable, let's start at 1%. Let's do that for a quarter and then maybe move to two and then three. And maybe it takes us two and a half or three years, but you're getting stronger and stronger in each category over time. Am I okay to pay myself rather than a percentage of comp? I would pay myself a salary, which is a fluctuating percentage based on the year. I would suggest a percentage, but you determine- You like a percentage. Yeah, yeah. I strongly recommend that. Because if we were doing a percentage of income- Yeah. That would be a very hard thing for personally to budget. So what do you yeah, say so, to that? Yeah, so yeah. Because one month we're making 15000 next month we're making 3000 What do you know? I got you. So we want predictability in our personal lives, but we're trying to pull. Right, I'm trying to separate those. But we're trying to pull from an unpredictable business because there's volatility in the income. Right, so, and, and seasonal. A lot of businesses are seasonal. seasonal. Yeah. So there's ways to address it. So first of all, I determine what is the predictable income I want to take home, say 90. Then I reverse engineer saying, if that was 10% of my income, what does the income need to be? Well, it's $900,000. My business needs to be a $900,000 business annually to support 90,000. So I first reverse engineer where my business needs to be. Most people just say, I want to take home 90,000 for my business no matter what size it is. Right, right. And that's a mistake. So we need to determine. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, yeah. okay. So we have to reverse engineer it. Then I also suggest funding that personal income account, the owner's comp account, above what you take home. So if I'm taking home 90,000 and it's gonna be 10% of my income, I really should have a million dollar business or maybe a million two, and now I'm putting 10% away, which is 120,000, and so there's actually a surplus building the owner's comp. A little 30 grand there. To yeah, so I still draw the 90, and then at a certain point, the surplus gets big enough where I can say, you know what, it's time for a raise, now I'm gonna take home you know, 100 or 110 or 120, and we bump it up again. Okay. So that's how we bring about that predictability. All right, Mike, I want to ask you in terms of the profit. Yeah. And I'm just, this is curiosity because you don't so much get into this in the book because everybody's different. You're dealing with you know, some of the basics here. What do you do with your profit? Do you have a percentage in the stock market, a percentage in real estate? Do you have life insurance policies? You, you know, you've dealt with a lot of business leaders, a lot of business owners, and you are one yourself. What do you do with that money? Yeah, so I use profit in uh, two ways. I always use it for personal reward. So I use it to celebrate. A percentage of it for personal reward? Or, or you blow the whole thing? Uh, no, percent. So whatever's, <laughs> in the, whatever's in the profit account, I take out 50%. Okay. And we use it as personal reward. Um, wow. That's all, that's really So we just got that. back. From, my wife and I just got back from Ireland on last quarter's profit distribution. How fun. It was unbelievable. We rented a castle. I mean, it was unbelievable. Philosophically, why are you doing that rather than putting it into assets? Okay. So my salary goes into my assets. I have, I should show you my personal accounts. I have like at home 15 bank accounts. I have one for each one of my children for their weddings, their future weddings we're saving. I have them for college. I still have two children in college. We just 
purchase our new house after 10 years of saving for it. And uh, I have a house, a new house account. Now I have a maintain that freaking house account. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> the taxes on that house. Though. Yeah, right. <laughs> the taxes on that freaking house account. So that all is out of my salary. Right. The profit is a reward. That, now, all of that is coming out of your salary. Okay, so yeah. you're saving money. And so you pay yourself a pretty good salary then. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. I, no. Um, I mean, he's gotten better and better over time. But when I started the system, my first year, ten years ago, my first year salary is about thirty thousand. Gotcha. So, so, so yeah. the new house account had like you know seventy five bucks at the end. But I'm like, you know, at least that's a doorbell or something. Right, like, right, right. You know, at least like, you know, so no, like, and that's a mistake. We don't need a great income to get there. Over time, the income's increased, but I've always lived within the means of my income. But back to that profit account. So I use it to reward myself, but I engage my family with it. So we use it as a family. I share a percentage of profit with my children. So every quarter. Do they work for the company? No, way? no. But they're investors in it because they support me. I, I'm here today. Gotcha. Uh, and I'm not Because they family. let you go. Yeah, they let me go. But it was funny. When I started doing this, my youngest son was nine years old at the time. I'll never forget this. Profit came out. My children all get 1% of the profit. My wife and I share the rest. And um, I, I go to my son. I give him the profit. He's like, what's this? I'm like, it's our quarterly profit. Next quarter, a nine-year-old, he comes to me. He goes, hey, Dad, how's Q3 looking? <laughs> right? Like, so... <laughs> So that's the ultimate engagement. <laughs> your shareholders. Yeah, it's the ultimate, ultimate engagement. Can they touch it? Can they touch? Can they go spend their money? On oh, yeah, it's, it's for them. Motorcycles? For them. Or is it just future? Whatever money? they want. It's for them to celebrate. We have suggestions for use, but they have to learn their discipline of money. They, now, they have to buy all their own things. My oldest son wanted to get a car. He bought a jalopy that he could afford out of lots of work and a little bit of the profit account that he'd elected to gotcha. put toward it. The one last kind of, I call it the golden rule. It's really the exception for profit. If you have debt, and I had, when I went bank, I didn't go bankrupt, when I nearly went bankrupt, I had huge amounts of debt. When profit came out, first thing was I eradicated debt. But I also set mechanisms that that debt would never come back. Yeah, that's principle number seven in the book. Get rid of debt. debt. Oh my God. That was an expense in the past you couldn't afford, so you took someone else's money and spent their money. You got to pay back that debtor and then never incur that debt again. So. You know, I live and you're off, aggressive on this. Get it, get it out. Very aggressive. And I live off debit cards now. Give me your thoughts on venture capital. I mean, technically, venture capital is usually an equity as opposed to a debt uh, yeah. financing. But here's my rule is I have to have a proven working model in my business that guarantees profitability. Once I have it, then use money to amplify that. That's where you get angel funds or venture capital. But most businesses say, oh, you know, I just need to raise money so I can run more ads. Well, do you know if it's going to bring any results? No, I just need to run ads. Yeah. That's the dumbest use. Yeah. Only have a working profit model. Now you know how to achieve it with the system. Have a working profit model, then seek raising money to support what works. Okay. Lastly, find money. And then I want to ask some personal questions. Find money within your business. I can't tell you how many people, Don, have called me and said, oh, you know, I have a X million dollar business and I, I can't make a penny. I'm like, you know, give me that business for a week. We will wring cash out of it. So <laughs> I you love know, that. And I'm sure anybody would go, here, here take it. Take, take it, it for a week. Take it. Yeah. I would love it, but I want to make decisions that they're not willing to make. We have to get our ego. Ego prevents us from the found money in our business. Inevitably, we have unnecessary expenses. Usually it's rent of facilities. We have way more than we need and we justify. I need an impressive, you know, A suite to impress my guests or my clients. They're not impressed. You know, I need to drive up in a Mercedes. They're not impressed. No, it's your ego. 
The second thing mm-hmm. is often employees. We overstaff constantly. Yeah, I need someone to do this. I need someone to do that. Yeah, you need those resources, but not with full-time employees that are paying these ridiculous amounts of salaries. Let's look for alternatives. There's tons of those. The next thing is many of us sell products and services that aren't profitable. Let's ditch those. Many of us, I guarantee it, have customers that actually cost us money to keep them. That one customer's never happy. Like, you know, my lawn, you mowed it, but like you kind of scraped the curb. I need a whole new curb installed around my my (laughs) property. That customer will never be happy. And yet we try to cater to them, dump the customer. I'm not saying they're bad people. They're just a bad fit for our business. And just by dumping them, we save money. So there's lots of these pockets of where we're bleeding money or spending money unnecessarily in any business that we can just cut those costs and increase margins, meaning we can sell generate more revenue from a customer by doing better for them because they're good customers and ditching bad customers. Those are the actions we need to take. But our ego usually prevents us from doing it. Early on, Tim, our producer, is here. He's actually COO of the company. Tim, you remember the airplane analogy that we used? We used to use it a lot more than we do now. We need to get back to it. But I drew the body of an airplane. Yeah. And I said, okay, this is overhead. And then I drew wings. And I said, okay, these are products. Mm -hmm. And then I drew engines. And I said, this is sales. Mm. So if you ever increase overhead, you have to increase the wings and you have to increase the engine. Yeah. Or the plane will crash. Yeah. And so somebody would come <laughs> to me and visual. say, it really is. You know, I remember Tim coming saying, we need this administration person, but that's a body of the aircraft thing. Is it going to make that? Yeah. So how do we justify that? Well, we could release this product or we could hire a salesperson or we could do this to make the jets go faster to afford the weight. Yeah. To me, it's made complete Great sense. Great visual. It yeah. really is because that plane's going down. If your overhead is not connected to sales or product creation, and by products I mean something to sell, something to make money on. Yeah. But I'm amazed. Will we, you know, interact with some companies that do similar work to us, make about the same amount of money? We've got what Tim, maybe 15 really full time people on staff. They'll have 60, and I'm literally going, "What are you doing with 60? I don't even know what I would do with 60 people. What are you doing with 60 people? Ego, ego. Is it?" Or yeah. is it insecurity? I always chalked it up to insecurity. I would say ego and insecurity is the same thing. Like it, or fear, like I can't do it alone, so, you know. And to hire someone requires very little thought. Oh, you, It's just throwing money or people as a situation yeah, yeah, to yeah. fix it, as opposed to really thinking through it. Here's a great find I've had with employees. My business only has eight employees, and I inspire. That's amazing uh, considering what all you accomplish with eight employees. Yeah, and here's the big secret. Five of them are part-time. I love part-time employees. And here's the deal. Also, I'm not going to tell you what I pay them because I don't think it's appropriate to share, but I think people will be surprised if they understand what the compensation rate is on the low side. I'm fearful of saying low because it sounds negative. I want the listeners to realize is not every person out there is looking to make tons of FU money. Like right. There are certain people who are looking for jobs because maybe they're, they're already wealthy enough. They're just looking for something that they enjoy to do. One of the people that work at our office she wanted something that was within walking distance. That was her primary criteria. She <laughs> wants awesome. to be able to walk from home to work. And we were in a small town, and this was her dream job. Yeah. And she's like, I don't care about the compensation. You got to pay me something. So I have some spending money, but I just want to walk to work. And every day she's like, I can't believe I work here. And she's extraordinary. But here's the greatest thing. Parkinson's law we talked about earlier. Yeah. Remember, the less of a supply, the more frugal and innovative we become. I give my part-timers who work three to four hours a day, eight hours of work. They get it all done. Why? Because they don't know the difference. They say, I got four hours, I got a haul, but, and they just focus and drive and drive and drive and drive, and they get stuff done. 
And I have full-time employees, and I'm not speaking negatively about them, but in the past, when I've given my full-time employees eight hours of work, it took them a full day to get done. So I believe it's the availability of time that determines how much work we get done, not the amount of work we have to get done. That's interesting. We're actually playing with unlimited paid time off next year and a, a workplace that would be you know, you wouldn't necessarily have a designated office. And the people who've implemented that system, Mike Hyatt implemented that system, he gets incredible work out of his people. And Is that row results-oriented work environment? I don't know. I'll, I'll look into it. Best Buy, if I remember the case study, this is about mm, five to ten years ago, rolled out this thing called row, where it was the same idea. Unlimited time off, you get your pay any work hours you want. Now, this was not for the retail stores at Best Buy. This was the home base. But they said, just get the work done. You're not paid for the hours you work. You're paid to bring results. And if you get the results, we don't even care if you sub out the work. I could pay you as an employee. You have someone else do it, and you bring the results to me. You know, <laughs> I love that idea. That's good. Tim would love that idea. Yeah. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. Tim's doing the peace sign. He absolutely He's is. out of here. He's great at that. I like your sign language, Tim. Tim did the peace sign and the I'm out of here sign. I don't know if it was a long-term success, but I think the idea it's interesting. was very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I have so many questions for you, but I fear we're going to run out of time. I want to know, what. just curious what you would do to fix the government. We'll come back and talk about some, yeah. some greater philosophical things another time. I'm going to ask a question. It's going to give us two different levels of answer. One, it's going to tell people how they can hire you to help them. And two, it's going to tell me how your company is structured. What are your revenue streams? What can this audience buy from you? There's a few, I guess, revenue streams for me. I'm a full-time author, so what I do is I do a lot of public speaking yeah. on Profit First and my other books. I have a brand new book coming out called Clockwork oh. uh, this summer. What's the it. subtitle? Design Your Business to Run Itself. Ooh. I believe there's a- Ooh, uh, that's going to do well, Mike. Thank you. You know, Maslow has the hierarchy of needs for, uh -huh. you know, first you have to have food and water and you work your yeah. way up to self-actualization. I believe in business we have the same thing. The fundamental level is profit. Without profit, all of our attention goes to, I need to make money. There's stress around it. Once we make adequate income to support ourselves and feel comfortable there, the next thing is now I need the freedom of time. How do I get the business to run without me? I believe the highest level is actually self-actualization in our business. I'm not there yet, but clockwork is the next step up this rung. Gotcha. So I'm a full-time author, so I do speaking in books. So revenue for me is my books. Yeah. And for my hired for speaking events. Right. But I also own an organization called Profit First Professionals. That is a group of accountants and bookkeepers and coaches globally who specialize in different industries. So we actually have someone, coincidentally, her name's Lori Peterson, in the lawn care industry. Huh. <laughs> You're kidding. I swear to God. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. She teaches lawn care businesses how to profit, implements the Profit First system. I'm going to tell my lawn care guy about that. His name is Drew. Drew oh, tell Drew. Call Lori. Call Lori Peterson. She's in Pennsylvania. There you go. Here's what's fascinating is she has taken Profit First, and this is true for every Profit First professional, into that category, and they've specialized it for that industry. She knows Profit First far better than I do for lawn care, so much so that many people, maybe not Drew, but many people in the lawn care industry think that Lori wrote the book. And I'm like, that's awesome, Lori. <laughs> that's really great. Yeah. That's she, called ownership. It's called ownership. Yeah. So that is ultimately a revenue stream for me because my members pay me a fixed fee to license it but I don't share in the revenue, so they're not motivated to build I love more. That's how we do it, too. We certify marketing agents. We certify guides. Fee. And I literally, Tim and I were just in the lobby here, and a gentleman hired one of our guides, and within two and a half weeks was quadrupling the number of calls he was getting for pools in Dallas, Texas. Boom. It, it just immediately made us see. And I love that because we don't take a percentage of our guides' money. Yeah. I don't want them charging the client more. Me neither. That really bothered me. So it was like, hey, pay us a fee. If you want to re-up the next year, pay us 
another fee. That's exactly and that's how you do it. And that's how you do it. Okay. I think it's a better it's model. I think it is too. Yeah. I think you know, we'd probably lose a little money doing it this way, but we don't have to micromanage. It's And you you also avoid infringing on a franchise model. Which, that's right. Yeah. So. I don't want to mess with that. No. So would every lawn care person hire Lori or does Lori have a bunch of people? Oh, under she's a bunch her? of people. She's got gotcha. so she bought when she bought the license, she bought it for just lawn care folk? Uh, no. How did that work? Yeah. So w- when people buy the license, we are limiting our organization to a thousand members, and there's far more than a thousand accountants and bookkeepers in the world. So this is globally. So by limiting it, we believe that they have a major differentiator. They're the only ones certified and profit first. We then, when they come on board, encourage them to become niche specialists. So a lot of people come in and they don't know their niche. We guide them through our process. I wrote a book called The Pumpkin Plan on yeah. niche specialization. We walk them through the pumpkin plan model and then guide them to picking their niche. So there's a thousand of these. There's a and thousand. They all yeah. have staffs working, or some of them some have of them staffs don't. working for them. Yeah. In other words, if our listeners call or go to what website? Profitfirstprofessionals.com and, and then, then click you, on find. And then we type will, in your field or whatever and yeah, see if there's somebody you, you can call. We'll ask you our 21 questions. It's not 21, like 10 questions about gotcha. your business and the field you're looking, and then we'll match you to a specialist for your category. And some categories, like contractors, for example, we have multiple experts that specialize in contractors. Some specialize in remodeling, other ones are in outdoor design, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, final question. Driving down the road, listening to your book, I was heading to a family vacation. We were all meeting at a lake. Had a wonderful four hours with your book and four hours on the way back. The whole family was like... No, no, I was by myself because I had all the gear oh, in the truck. I was visualizing your family yeah. sitting there. You're hauling down the but road. Actually, the four hours on the way back, Betsy was with me, and we both loved it. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, so, so, that's a rare. Yeah, it's a good family listen. Um, <laughs> I have a personal question because I wrote seven memoirs before I wrote my business book. Wow. And they're known for being vulnerable. I've never once thought they were vulnerable. People are like, oh, you're so vulnerable. I'm like, oh. what part of being human is that? Right, right, <laughs> I, I, right, right, right. I don't right. think, I'm not sharing anything that to me feels vulnerable. Still, in my business book, I wasn't vulnerable at all because it was a business book. I wanted to get yeah. to the point and blah, blah, blah. You are incredibly vulnerable in a business book. Thank you. And I won't get into it. People are going to have to read the book to find out. Yeah. By the way, I have no vested interest in you reading this book other than the fact that if you listen to this podcast, I want it to be as good as an MBA and you've got to get this book. So, but I'm just curious from one writer to another, why did you decide to do that? First of all, it's probably therapy. I can't hide from the story. And initially I did. I was ashamed. Did you feel like I'm hiding something? There's nothing scandalous at all. Oh, no, it's You've not. been an integratable guy. But did you feel like, I can't hide this from the audience? If we're going to spend right. some time together, you got to know me. Yeah, you got to know who I am. Wow. So when I write the books, I write core values for my books. And okay. one of the, the, actually, the first core value is called Arm Over the Shoulder. When someone reads my book, I want them to feel that's just me and them. Just in a bar, maybe we did a shot of tequila to calm our nerves, and now <laughs> let's get to the nitty-gritty. That's how the book felt. Thank you. That means yeah. a lot to me. And, and so that's a very important component. I think what comes out of it is relatability. I think very much so. As, as opposed to like a professor saying, "Here's you know what you should do." I've been through it and continue to go through it, so I think that helps a lot. Well, Mike McCallis, this has been an incredibly enjoyable conversation. Thank you, Don. Which rarely can be said about finances and bank accounts <laughs> and all these kinds of things. Also, you are just a wonderful human being. You're incredibly oh, thanks, generous, brother. and it's just been great to get to know you a little bit. Mike Michalowicz, the book is called Profit First. Get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books. And I know we have a lot of authors on the program, and I know you're like, Don, I can't even keep up. My bedside table is, there's 37 books that you've recommended. I hear you. Get this one, put it at the top, hit pause for a minute, finish it, and then start the rest of the books. Mike, thanks for coming by. Don, thank you so much. 
he was good, right? Yeah. He's, yeah, he's very hopeful. So practical. Very, very practical. It struck me, you know, when he talked about renting the castle for his family yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. He spends 50% of his profit on fun. Yeah, yeah. I love that because he's got this attitude of like, Noah, I'm not a miser. I'm not saving up, yep. you know, in case tragedy happens. We will live today. Yeah. And then the whole thing about his kids. Yeah, like, involving your family. And I mean, involving your family and the whole thing and his kid asking how's third quarter revenue going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's a great picture of what life can be like. And, you know, the bottom line is you don't separate business from family no. very easily. The best thing is just to acknowledge it. Yeah. And, I, you know, back in the old days, I can't imagine separating farming from farm life. Yeah, right. Give me a break, yeah. right? And so to have mom and dad not leave home and have this mysterious absence all the time and they come back but to have the family know exactly what's going on sounds really cool music from this episode is by Andrew Bell you can listen to Andrew's new record Dive Deep on Spotify or on iTunes thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast where we believe if you confuse you'll lose noise is the enemy and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business